Uh, very, look, very much looking forward to today's guest, uh, Praveen Sahay. Uh, Praveen is the founder and managing director of Wave Equity Partners, a Boston-based independent impact investment firm, currently investing out of their third investment fund. Praveen has had a, a fascinating career, which we're going to hear about on this latest podcast. Uh, originally uh, a nuclear physicist, uh, Praveen also prospected for, for offshore oil and gas deposits. He managed retail operations for India's largest mutual fund uh, and led armed battalions as a deputy commandant in, it, in, uh, in India. Uh, Praveen also served as a peacekeeper for the United Nations in Mozambique during the country's democratic transition in 1994. Before founding Wave Equity Partners, he was an investment professional for over a decade at VC firm Vimac and Updater Venture Partners. Praveen is a, a Kaufman Fellow and was awarded a UN Peace Medal for his services in Mozambique. Uh, Praveen, it's a, it's a real pleasure to have you on today as my guest. Thank you. James, it's a real pleasure to be speaking with you and thank you for the opportunity to talk to you and to your audience. So Praveen, I'm going to start where I have with each of my podcast sessions and just to get your your investment philosophy, your leadership philosophy, how would you describe your approach to leadership at Wave Equity Partners? We started Wave roughly 10 years ago with uh, two other co-investing partners, Mark and Haskell. And we decided to form a new fund to focus exclusively in clean energy investing because we, dis because we figured that in order to make consistently good profits in the sector, you need to formulate a strategy which has been lacking in the industry overall. And the key legs of the strategy were go for a comprehensive impact strategy, which means not only clean energy, but also food and water and smart cities and uh, transformation of the urban uh, systems, oceans and clean air, um, and go for massive improvements of 30, 40, 50% leaps in innovation and efficiency rather than three, four, 5% that you can get by implementing software. A large number of our peers were focused on software investments and also focusing more on specific themes of investments that change over the years. In the past, people talked about solar and wind and then EV and batteries. And now everybody's rushing in the, you know, specific directions such as hydrogen economy and even nuclear fusion, ambient air carbon capture. We needed a much more comprehensive we are looking at, looking at it following not the money trail, but following truly the innovation trail where you can identify scalable technologies that are already in market and are ready for global impact where they have not only positive environmental benefits, but they're also more affordable than the incumbent solutions. Um, that's comprehensive and pragmatic approach was overall missing in the marketplace. Um, we have this mantra, we say, it is not sustainable if it is not profitable, which means you're, you don't have to impose, you should not want to impose economic cost for the sake of green transition. Um, so that's what we have you know, been focused on and it has been a surprisingly uh, positive journey where we have discovered really impactful solutions that don't increase the cost for the marketplace and for the users. And how, how would, just in that context, Praveen, before we, we, we delve into your, your life and your career path, if you were to define your, your style of leadership, what, how, would you, how would you characterize that, would you say? Uh, the, the style doesn't stay constant. It changes over time. You know, in the armed forces, you're used to a very different style of leadership than the style of leadership that you do now in managing a fund in you know, talking to the LPs or talking to the uh, entrepreneurs and, and our own team management. 
the style of leadership uh, that I follow now uh, is highly collaborative and original in the sense of it has to be directed towards deep respect for the what the entrepreneurs have done and deep respect for what the LPs are expecting from you. Um, and, and that respect means that you should be a very good listener. You need to understand what is it that has compelled your entrepreneurs, for example, in dedicating 10 years of their lives behind an idea which is unorthodox, uh, unorthodox and has compelled them to make a lot of sacrifices in order to run through these, these brick walls and surviving on very little amount of dollars because by and far solutions which are unorthodox are neglected by the mainstream investors. Um, and so you have to pay a lot of respect to who they are, what they have done, what their passions in life are, life are and understand not only their desires, but also their limitations so that you can team together and find out a solution that is good for them, for us, and for everybody else. And have there been any key principles that you've learned through your life that, that you think you would personally apply to how you're overseeing wave equity and and the type of culture that you're building there? James, that's a very, very large question, especially you know, if uh, you have grown in different countries, worked in different countries and various industries, um, it, it, you know, to being successful in an in a industry in climate tech investment, uh, it's not only about technology and economics or capital, but also about planet and society, uh, planet and people. Um, when I you know, grew up in India, in the state of Bihar, which is still one of the poorest states in the country and, and stayed and studied at a school which was in the top of a hill in a forest, six hours away from the nearest city, you completely isolated existence for five years. You're living the life of a hermit and, and you are understanding the dance and play and the mutual reliance between nature and people. And then you go on to study nuclear physics. I studied you know, nuclear physics partly because of an experience I had when I was in grade nine, um, during Christmas break, I uh, was visiting the deepest coal mine um, that was uh, named Chasnala in the state, in my home state. Uh, and this is the year of uh, 1985, sorry, 75. Um, and we were the last visitors. So I went down there with my family, with my uh, brother and sister. Uh, we came back, by the time we came back up, uh, to the surface, it was already uh, dark. Um, and that night, uh, roughly two o'clock in the morning, the mine collapsed and trapped several hundred miners um, in, a, in a watery graveyard. And we were the last visitors to come back alive. So that was a very close call um, that demonstrated and, and left probably a deep impression in the mind about the dangers and risks of the fossil fuel industry overall. So uh, you know, when I studied, when I chose to study nuclear physics, this was an era when nuclear industry was expected to solve all of the energy problems for the world. Now, the track changed and things didn't happen in the, in the way desired. But I did work in, you know, not only uh, nuclear physics, but also oil and gas. And when I was in the armed forces, because of my technical background, uh, I was part of this unit paramilitary force called the Central Industrial Security Force, where I worked with you know, petrochemicals and refineries and power and steel and mining industries um, to secure their safety and, and security implementations. That gave me a very good uh, sort of in innate understanding of how industries function um, and what makes them work. So, uh, and then, you know, for the last 50 years, I've also been practicing yoga and meditation in the morning. So all of those, you know, concerned about the, uh, about the planet, the understanding of the people that you develop while working as a leader in the armed forces, where you are going in very explosive situations with 200 or a thousand armed men, 
while you're trying to protect your own men, you're also trying to protect the societies. You're, I was not going to war zones. I was going into um, uh, peace handling situations of, uh, in the internal, in, inside the country. So you don't want to necessarily create damage uh, on, on any front. So it gives you, uh, teaches you a lot of nuances and you come to appreciate that people inherently are good. They want peace, they want stability. Everybody's desired with one uh, you know, primary goal, which is to improve their lives. And if you work with them on their goals and agendas, then things can come together in a very positive way. And that was the experience of the United Nations in Africa. Um, Mozambique, when I was there in 94, 95, was, was the most heavily mined country in the world at the time. Right. Um, and, and many earlier peace efforts had failed. Um, and when I was there, I became the national coordinator of elections uh, at the age of 30. Um, and it turned out to be one of the most successful United Nations peace missions. And, and that, you know, activity and role on the world stage gave me the confidence that I could be doing more. And I left the country and came here. So yeah. when you think about what lessons or experiences, you know, inform your work today, it's really hard to pin down because it is so many things packed into a small package. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You did use a nice analogy um, when we, we, we spoke previously about a leaf floating down a river. I don't know if you can recall that or whether that still resonates with you in terms of how you uh, like to think about the, the meandering path that we, uh, that we all live through our lives. The, 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 you know, the experience tells me that the life always throws a lot of opportunities at you. And it is incumbent on us to figure out whether we want to accept that opportunity or not. Um, I visualize my life as, you know, a leaf floating down the stream, which, uh, you know, catches on the wave, floats down, then gets on the side, spends some time together, dancing in the stream, and then you feel a tug and you move again. Um, and, and the life really did advance in such a fashion where you don't worry about what the future is going to bring. You just live by the day focusing on what's in front of you, just improving things day by day. Um, fortunately, now I'm in a situation where, you know, the life still tugs, but it doesn't mean that I have to change my job or change my firm. Um, it, it just means that wave changes uh, every day. You know, we are discovering new opportunities. We are discovering, we are seeing the unexpected uh, every week. Um, and rather than going out with a thesis that this is what the future is going to look like, it's going to be a hydrogen economy. We don't say that. We, 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 are, looking for, we are looking for that tug, that you see something completely unexpected. It takes your breath away. And you know that if this solution were to be deployed around the world, it will create massive amount of very positive impact. Interesting. Yeah, it's uh, looking for those sort of uh, magnetic... Uh, attractions that, that could lead to, to very interesting investment opportunities for the for the firm. I'd like to, I, I, just because you spoke in your last um, comments there, uh, that, that early experience in your younger years when you were visiting that, that, that uh, I think one of India's deepest coal mines with your, with your father. Uh, I mean, that was clearly a, a probably a very, uh, traumatic experience given what happened uh, just after you left uh, visiting the uh, the area uh, what, what did what did that tell you about nature the environment and also risk uh, I just wonder how did that leave an imprint on you even in that even at that early uh, age uh, you know, this, this, the, the Chasnala mine is located, was located in Dhanbad and the mine of course was closed after the accident, mm. but Dhanbad was like the coal capital of India and probably one of the densest and richest coal, uh, you know, seams in the world. Um, 
India, you know, in, 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 the, in the 70s, India was a socialist economy, as you know. And so uh, most of the rich industrial enterprises were owned and operated by the government. Um, government still is a major owner or a significant owner in many of these enterprises after several rounds of privatization. But it was very clear, you know, we, we were taught in schools and um, it is a reality that in order to improve the lots of the people, the, the lived realities of the people, you need to have economic growth. And economic growth, one of the fundamental underpinnings is energy, affordable energy. And, and very few people were paying attention um, to the environmental damage that economic growth was generating at the time. Um, the Chasnala experience was a very tangible experience of not only environmental disaster, but actually a social disaster. Um, there were other you know, events that happened uh, around that time. One was in Bhopal, which was one of the largest uh, chemical um, accidents that happened in the world uh, that killed not hundreds, but thousands um, of people and also created long-term implications. So 70s were a time when uh, people really started to care and, and the conversation about the environment became more and more tangible and urgent. Um, but, but, you know, on the one hand, you're talking about, okay, we need to do things more responsibly. And on the other hand, uh, the compulsions of economic growth meant that people continue to do more and more of what they were doing. So more coal mining, more power plants, um, um, and, and not just energy, but, you know, uh, water became more and more uh, of a scarce commodity in many regions of India. Um, uh, drinking water or even, you know, water for farming became uh, more difficult to come by. Uh, food suffered, so, you know, food chain became very, uh, and environmentally polluted um, and and so it started to sicken a lot of people so uh, over the last 50 years things have become you know uh, more and more grave uh, which has obviously generated tremendous amount of concern about uh, the greening of the planet uh, but people are still trying to search for the right solutions um, and every couple of years we come up with new ideas our experts our policymakers, the world economic forum the United Nations, they come up with new thesis about what the green, green future is going to look like. That picture changes every couple of years. And people just rush in those directions. Uh, we are trying to ignore what everybody else is saying and doing and just follow the innovation trail. So that does that require just that ability to almost slow down time, just, just, just see... Just let things happen. Uh, I mean, that's a, that's a discipline in itself, isn't it? Just to be able to in, invest and identify opportunities at, at, at the right sort of cadence and not rush into things and not get carried away. Could, could you talk a bit about that? I mean, I just wonder what your, your thoughts are. I, on I that. love your expression, you know, slowing down time. And yes, it does uh, require a lot of discipline. Uh, today, if you don't have discipline, it's so easy to get distracted. Um, there are hundreds of opportunities that come across the table. Um, and whereas you know, we are trying to do at least, you know, six months of due diligence before we invest in a company. Uh, we have over funds one and two, 10 portfolio companies. Our engagement with these companies has been typically one year or longer before we invested in the companies. And the surprising thing is that during that due diligence period, no other investor showed up with interest to invest in these companies. I'm talking about financial investors. No other financial investor showed up with interest. So we have never had to compete on a term sheet. We never had to jump on a moving band, bandwagon. Um, and, and so we really ignore what everybody else is saying is the right thing to do. Uh, this year we have invested in three companies and you would imagine that over the last six, seven years, we closed our first fund in 2016. Um, and at that time, there was a real absence of co-investors, financial co-investors or strategic co-investors. That obviously has changed radically in the last three, four years where 
there is so much more capital coming into the marketplace, many more, many larger, you know, much larger peer set than we had before. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet the three investments we made this year followed exactly the same template. One year of due diligence and engagement before we made the investment and no competing term sheet. And these are exceptionally powerful companies and innovations and products in the marketplace. Um, But imagine, you know, yourself in the shoes of an investor and you get a call from Florida, which is not exactly a hotbed of innovation. (laughs) And the entrepreneur, the CEO tells you, we have made an engine that runs on 70% water and 30% ethanol. It gives you the same amount of torque and power as as a diesel engine of that same size and produces zero SOX emissions, zero NOx emission, less than half the energy cost, less than half the greenhouse gas emissions. And you say, tell me again, what's your fuel? Water and ethanol, don't waste my time, please. But if you know that you have the ability and the willingness to work with companies for a six months to a year before you invest, then you can listen to the story. Uh, they started the company, you know, almost 10 years ago. They started on this innovation path nearly 40 years ago. It was the dad of the founder um, that, that started working on, you know, a water-based engine. And you have to show respect for what they are. Um, and you ask some simple, you know, scientific questions, first principles-based questions. And if you're finding the right answers, then you say, okay, I'm going to invest time in it. I'm going to take experts to their side. I'm going to look under the hood. I'm going to talk to the customers and understand what makes it work. Um, is it reliable? Is it scalable? Is it affordable? And, and it does take a lot of time to find those answers. But if you get to the right answer, my God, the implications for the world are huge. Yeah, that, 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 um, just that, that, that willingness to, to really uh, take time listen i think just listening uh in in and of itself is a a key skill of leadership um i think it's it's crucial to avoid being in any sort of echo chamber you've got to listen to your colleagues your your potential investee ceos listen to their story listen to their 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 solution their innovation and i think probably uh, Praveen, your background as a nuclear physicist, you you have that skill to to approach uh, that initial discussion on on first principles and, and think carefully about the right questions to ask. Is that, is that would you uh, would you agree? Uh, oh, uh, certainly so. Um, you know, one would think that you know when you are you're deeply steeped in technology and science, um, you would become very highly opinionated. opinionated. Mm. We know what's right. We know what works, right? I know the edge of physics and chemistry. Um, But on the other hand, if you have done it right, you actually end up with a deep sense of humility because the nature has disclosed some of its secrets to you, but has not disclosed all the secrets to you. And uh, a real scientist, a real engineer, keeps a very open mind and is always open to new possibilities. Um, that doesn't happen always, uh, but fortunately we have, not, not just me, but my partners, Mark and Haskell also come from industrial and energy backgrounds. And we have maintained that openness where we don't think we know the answers. And we are willing to listen to the entrepreneurs that have dedicated five or 10 years that have been engaged with really serious problems, have given deep thought and have actually worked on a solution that works today. And if it is unusual, uh, unusual, if it is unorthodox, that doesn't scare us. Let's, uh, let's just go back a little bit. Um, well, let's go back to when you were 11, uh, Praveen. <laughs> so quite a go back a few years, I, I think you were selected to um, attend uh, one of India's government schools. I believe it was a very, very, very strict um, exam uh, process to get uh, to get that scholarship. I think 60 students out of tens of thousands. Uh, could you 
talk a little bit about that and, and what that was like for 11-year-old Praveen that left home and uh, was working in that, uh, not working, but studying in that uh, quite prestigious environment, but um, but quite remote as well. Yeah, I would not call it prestigious. It, it didn't feel like that when you're living six hours away from the nearest uh, town uh, in the middle of, a, middle of a forest. But yes, getting accepted to that program was very prestigious. Um, as a 10-year-old, you don't really know any of this. Um, but what happened in, in my situation was uh, my mother, um, who was a high school graduate when she got married at a very young age, uh, quickly sired uh, three children. And after we were you know, a few years old, uh, I was the oldest. Uh, my youngest sister was seven at the time. Uh, she decided she was going to go back to college for education. And uh, so after my, after we were you know quite grown up, um, she you know went through uh, undergrad and postgrad and PhD, and then she became a teacher and a principal of a girls' school. But when she started her studies for college, um, she would you know, and she was running a household with three children. Um, so she would wake up at four thirty or five o'clock in the morning for her studies. And this uh, inspired her, this inspiration came to her that maybe her, her son can get admitted to one of the most competitive schools in the state of Bihar. So she would wake me up and I would prepare for the entrance exam. And, and that clearly played its a very significant role in uh, my selection in this uh, competitive examination where tens of thousands of students appear for the admission test uh, for 60 seats. Now the school is a little bigger. Now they select 100 every year rather than <laughs> 60. Uh, but still, you know, a very competitive process. And then you go to the school, which was founded by Gandhian principles. Um, and so you live the life of a hermit. Uh, we all wore homespun khadi clothes, for example. You, are, you wake up at uh, 5 o'clock in the morning and all day you are busy with academics and sports and physical training, uh, but also a lot of cleaning, etc., we would, you know, clean our hostels and dining halls and our bathrooms and uh, everything we did with, with our own hands. Um, so it gives you, gave you, taught you uh, a life of self-reliance and pride on who you are um, and also to love nature. I, I remember before we got up, uh, before we, we put our feet on the ground, we were supposed to pray. I get emotional just thinking about it. Uh, um, just take a minute and uh, let's let's transition to your 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 subject that mm -hmm. you clearly shined in, which was was physics. I think you had a natural flair and affinity for. From, I guess for mathematics and, and, and physics, um, I think that came maybe naturally to you, Praveen. Was that, um, did that then sort of steer you then towards your higher education? I, 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 uh, and then obviously becoming a, a nuclear physicist, clearly there was the, a very clear uh, 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 capacity there to be very successful in that field. Uh, for for you know a reason of course that we cannot can never know um, physics sure. came very natural to me um, yeah and uh, somehow my brain functioned in a way that I was always looking for and understanding the basic principles um, that made anything work so whether it was nuclear physics or um, any other aspect of physics um, the, f the f basic understanding of what makes things work uh, what connects things what moves things um, um, I, I used to get an intuitive understanding of things. So uh, it became somewhat natural and easy for me to grasp. Um, and, and that, uh, the, the ability to look for and understand the fundamental first principles of any activity, anything, any technology, any product um, has probably become, has helped us a lot in finding right investments for WAVE. We have never invested in a company where the products did not ultimately work or succeed. 
they were, you know, if there are, there can be adverse market conditions uh, where, you know, the companies may not be able to raise capital um, or if they're slightly dependent on government. So, you know, one of our companies was in waste processing and they won a global RFP to build a $350 million waste processing plant for the city of Los Angeles. And then four years go by and the city is not able to site the facility uh, because of the NIMBY phenomena. So uh, those situations can occur, but everything uh, the, we have invested uh, in has always worked. Uh, the NIMBY phenomena? I, could you maybe explain it's, that? It's uh, not in my backyard. Ah. So everybody wants, you know, reprocessing. Everybody wants waste to be processed to something useful. Uh, but they don't want the waste processing plant visible from their homes. Um, and so, it, you know, big decisions like that be often become a political football. So oh, absolutely. even, uh, you know, that, one of our, that was one of the earlier uh, experiences that convinced us not to get involved in things that require government subsidies and government support. And I think in, in your, uh, again, going back to the early part of your career as as a nuclear physicist, I think I'm right in saying that that you were overseeing a lot of um, industrial enterprise uh, initiatives with power plants, fertilizer companies, nuclear power, mining companies, all of these sort of state-owned companies by the government of India. Is that, um, I just wonder, during those years, is that how you then segued into becoming um, part of the uh, the election process and, and helping secure uh, the country's elections? Uh, and I just wonder what that what experience that was like. What that was like for you, Praveen, having previously well, worked in industry. India has many paramilitary forces. There is a border security force. There is a CRPF, and there are several. Uh, and and uh, our unit was one of those. Uh, mm. Our primary responsibility was industrial security and safety. Uh, but when there were big national movements like the national elections of India, is a major process, right? It's the largest democracy in the world, um, and you are trying to. In the nineties, the government started a program to ensure. Um, full safety and security and impartiality in these elections, they would mobilize paramilitary forces from one region of the country to another so that there are no vested interests in the people who are overseeing the elections or or helping oversee the elections um, and and to maintain neutrality. So um, when there were general elections, um, me and my units, uh, we would assemble, say, a thousand, you know, a battalion from different places. Um, and if I am working in the south, then I will be moved to the north to help with the election. And these are staged elections. These are like five stages. So stage uh, in, in phase one, you see the election in one district. You move to another district for phase two, then phase three. And there is no counting done between the phases. So these are, you know, exercises that continue for several weeks. Mm. Um, and, and, and that uh, experience taught us a lot about, you know, it, it, you go into very rural uh, areas of the country, um, you see how certain sections of the people are afraid even to vote, um, uh, how, uh, you know, certain nefarious sections of the society would try and influence elections either by money or by force uh, and and you try to neutralize all of those negative uh, elements at work um, as a result of which in the 90s the elections the general elections in india became really the envy of the world hmm. they were you know seen as one of the most efficiently and fairly managed electoral processes that's why when the united nations look looks for taking on, uh, you know, help for managing free and fair elections in a very disciplined manner, they often take a significant amount of experience from India. Did, did you actually think at that time that you had that capacity to to manage thousands of 
of police officers going into different communities and all of those complexities of the different different groups uh, was that something that you felt innately was within you or, or did it just develop I, I'm just interested to understand that oh you I mean the secret to doing all of this is you never doubt yourself <laughs> <laughs> Yes. And, and you simply assume that whatever the circumstances, you're going to succeed. Right. Um, the, 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 you know, when you become a, a, a captain or a, at the age of 24 and a major at the age of 27 or 28, um, you do get a lot of training of working with people um, and, um, and, and work in such a fashion that they b- begin to trust you in these national mobilizations. For the elections, for example, in India, I would often be given command of troops that I had never seen before, that I had never met before or worked with before. So you you do you know start to build a, a, a repertoire of skills that allow you to build bridges and trusting relationships with people who are under your command and people that your command your that you're you know reporting to. Uh, so that sort of fleet-footedness, uh, you, I did have some training. Uh, but I, when I went to uh, Mozambique, there were 1,500 police officers from all over the world. I think there were 34 countries represented, including several European countries and Asian and African countries. And the place is a chaos. You know, when you go into a new mission, uh, there are 1,500 police officers roaming around the corridors of the headquarters in Maputo trying to figure out what is it that they're supposed to do? Mm-hmm. Um, and what I started to do was, of, there were already a few de- departments that had been established. So there was a, there was a skeleton of a organization being formed. And I would go to the people and offer my help and say, can I do anything to help you today? Mm-hmm. Um, and they would say, what can you do? And I said, anything. I'm a physicist, I know computers, uh, I can write policies, I can train people, I can do anything that you need. And and they started to give me responsibilities. And very quickly, within two weeks, I think they got a sense that I could be a very good resource in the headquarters. And when I was told that you're going to stay in the headquarters, then the other departments of the United Nations, the electoral division, the logistics division, they started to approach me and say, oh, we need some help because uh, in to go out and install a computer network or a modem network or so we need somebody who can redeploy our infrastructure you know we wrote a computer program for example at the previous mission we need somebody who can redeploy it for the current mission um, or somebody would come up and say oh we don't have a policy manual can you you know figure out what mm-hmm. uh, we have a new constitution being written for the country um, and we need to translate that constitution into operational uh, procedures for the police department. And so there was never any dearth of work. Uh, and I was sort of being loaned from one department to the other, other, not only in the police, but also in the military, in the logistics, in the personnel division and so forth. And they ultimately decided, okay, we are going to make him the coordinator, the national coordinator of elections so that his resources are available to all of us. Um, so it, it just evolved over time. Uh, you can't, cannot script anything like this. Yeah. Uh, but just knowing that you have the capability and your sincere desire to help and work, um, you know, takes you places. Yeah, I mean, and, uh, being able to do that in a completely different country like Mozambique. Again, that that that's you know an incredible experience. Again, of, of just managing a lot of complexity, uh, a lot of a lot of different people, a lot of different personalities, character types, and maintaining that 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 peacekeeping um, purpose, uh, which, as I said it in my uh, introduction, earned you the uh, the UN Peace Medal. And so, I mean, incredible. Uh, did you take anything from that experience in Mozambique, Praveen, to? apply now to where you are with, with AVEC, Wavec too? This was the first time that I had, uh, you know, traveled outside the country in, in a significant, significant way. Um, in India, you know, 
uh, every nation grows its children with a very strong sense of pride in their nationhood, in their citizenship. And, and I had that too. Um, and I remember making a statement when I first came to Mukwito to uh, a colleague from another country. And I said, India has done exceedingly well after its independence as a nation. Um, in, when you look at um, the economic and the political stability and the growth of the country. And, and that person started to laugh. And she said, you really have to see the world to know where the rest of the world has moved and how far India has been left behind. Uh, we are talking about, you know, late 80s. So India had already been independent for 40 years. And, and she was so right. You know, when you started to look at what the rest of the world has accomplished in the 40 years, you know, the Asian miracle had, you know, was already in process. And, and India was, you know, more known for its, you know, subs, you know, 2% annual growth, uh, which was uh, really laughed at by the economists of the world and was, you know, far, far lower than what the many other countries in Asia had accomplished. So it was really, uh, uh, on the one hand, you are experiencing tremendous amount of pride in your accomplishments as professional. And on the other hand, you're looking at the state of the country and saying, oh, my God, there is so much more that India could have done and should have done. Um, very soon after I returned, the liberalization started to happen in the country in the early 90s. Um, and, and that was sort of a siren call that there is a lot of development and progress that needs to happen in India and in other countries around the world. And innovation was something new that I had discovered after I left India when I'm working in the United Nations. Computers were already being utilized. Companies like Microsoft and Apple had been founded and were becoming more and more popular. Um, and as a physicist, uh, again, my desire that, okay, the nuclear future did not happen, but then there are many other frontiers of innovation that are now coming through and are we going to be left behind again? How do we stay in the forefront of that innovation ecosystem? And, and, and so all of it sort of come together, came together in a way, combining experience in India, in the United Nations. You're looking at the world as a physicist um, and, and discovering that on a world stage, a lot more things can happen and I need to be part of that. Um, yeah, that was absolutely. the juncture where I decided to leave India yeah. Um, a, a very uh, a, a prestigious and a, and a very fulfilling career in India and migrate to the U.S. because I wanted to be part of that innovation ecosystem. Yeah, and uh, that's, that's a perfect segue into my next question. So let's, this is 1996, uh, I think I'm correct in saying, and that was the next um, kind of, if we use our kind of leaf on the stream analogy, that was the next kind of gravitational pull, uh, the next meander around the stream, got stuck in a bit of, the, of an eddy, and uh, there you are. You moved to the US, and I believe you went to study for the, an MBA at uh, the University of Chicago. That I think I'm right in saying that's where, that, um, that's where your entrepreneurial spirit was born. Uh, that is true. Uh, when I came to the U.S., I made the assumption that uh, I will get a postgraduate degree um, in economics or management and uh, build a career at the United Nations because it was the United Nations um, and multiple offers, job offers that I had made when I, when I went back to India from Mozambique. That was That was the... Um, instigator for thinking about, okay, what else can I do? What more can I do? Um, I came here initially at the Tulane University and then transferred to the University of Chicago. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, if I had, you know, chosen to go to the Kennedy School at the Harvard you know, University, I probably would be working at the United Nations. But uh, when you go to a, a school like the University of Chicago, uh, you start to discover more 
about how the private enterprise works, about the power of the markets to move the economy and to create efficiencies in the marketplace. And in particular, the power of the private markets to lift innovation um, and, 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 and deploy it worldwide so that the productivity of the societies improve and things happen and move in a more positive direction forward. So this ability of the private markets to catapult innovation uh, really sort of caught my attention. I came to know about the Kauffman Foundation um, and the Kauffman program um, that is a unique program in the world that trains and mentors the next generation of venture capitalists. Um, so uh, a year after I graduated from the school, uh, I was hired by a venture capital fund. And uh, then I came to realize my shortcomings, uh, not knowing enough about the venture capital industry. So I applied to the Coffin Fellowship Program and became a Coffin Fellow in 2003. Uh, that really sort of completed the circle. Uh, it gave me the right set of tools um, and under the right set of framework uh, in order to be successful with entrepreneurs. And that led you to join Vimac, um, that, uh, an early stage VC firm. Uh, That's before... right. My, my, the, the first fund that I had worked with was uh, Updata, Venture yeah. Partners in Washington, yeah. D.C. And while at Updata, I applied for the Coffin Fellowship Program. And the uh, Coffin Fellowship Program has changed now quite a bit. You can now obtain a fellowship and continue to work at your existing firm. But in those days, the only way that you could be selected as a Coffin Fellow was you go in through an open comp competitive process and they would place you or the process of interviewing would match you with a firm with, which is looking to hire a Coffin Fellow that year. And Vimec Ventures was um, one of the uh, few firms looking for a fellow that year and I got matched up with Vimec. So I had to leave Updata and come to uh, Boston to join Vimec. Now, Vimec was an early stage investor in technology, in software and telecom and internet. Um, we're talking about early 2000s, um, which was okay. You know, it, it taught me a lot of skills um, for uh, how to uh, run or, you know, be uh, part of a venture capital firm. But then, uh, you know, software or telecom were never really my love. Um, and I had not grown up in those industries. So uh, we continued to look for uh, ways to get back into the energy and industrial. And uh, when the in 2010 or so, when the clean tech investment really blew up after investors had suffered a lot of losses um, in the first generation, in the first decade of uh, clean tech investing, we saw the window to step in when everybody else was retreating from the sector. We decided to be the contrarian player, step into the industry, form a new fund uh, that would focus into climate tech investments when uh, find you know responsible breakthroughs that are already productized and are not only environmentally superior but also more affordable to use to buy and use and deploy so yeah. it's been a very heartful journey since then yeah yeah i'll come to the investment landscape in a moment i just wonder just thinking about your journey and your experiences, your academic career. Um, what, how have you? How do you think all of those experiences have shaped how you think about building team culture and getting the right dynamics in place uh, at Wave Equity, and and also how you foster maybe that 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 intellectual curiosity that learning mindset that is really crucial when you're looking for these next best innovative companies in clean tech the uh, when, you, when you think about how to um, shape the right investment firm um, there are you know three different aspects to it one is the organizational making things that you have policies that where Everybody feels empowered, protected, um, and, and 
has a keen voice, knows that every person matters and uh, nobody is less than the other person. Everybody has the opportunity for not only contributing to what I or Mark or Haskell are trying to do, but they also have the opportunity to ideate, to create something of their own. The second part is um, the particular way in which we have identified and worked with our portfolio companies is shared by everybody else. So while everybody has an original voice, there is also the voice of the firm mm -hmm. or the style and the approach of the firm. And, and, and you get that by making sure that everybody is completely on board with everything else we are doing. So when we are looking at companies, anybody can look at companies. Uh, when we are talking about why something we like, why something we don't like, um, how do we approach or look at a new investment? How do we build trust with our entrepreneurs? Um, what sort of due diligence we offer, um, we, we conduct with our portfolio companies. When we are providing due diligence to the companies, when we are building the growth playbook for companies, when we are trying with our operating partners to help them become more efficient in manufacturing and supply chain management and IP management and sales and distribution. It is obviously known, we recognize that when, when we are investing in the companies that have 20 employees, they don't have those skills, they don't have those departments. Uh, everybody's doing everything else. And so you have to build the right set of disciplines and execution capabilities within the companies. We bring those experts into those companies. Many of those experts are full-time operating partners at WAVE and others are you know, part-time attachments that work repeatedly with our portfolio companies. We have to make sure that when they are working with the deficiencies of the companies, they don't see and call out those deficiencies as weaknesses of the company. Mm. Those are really opportunities for us to add value to the company. Mm. The reason the entrepreneurs have teamed up with us, a good part of that reason is they know that we have those capabilities and desires to work with our portfolio companies. That's why we keep our portfolios very short, small, and tight. Mm. In fund one, we had six investments. Fund two, we have only six investments. Fund three, in a $400 million fund, we are targeting only 10. Why? Because we don't want to weaken our capabilities and our engagement level with the companies. We know that the companies, in addition to capital, also need and appreciate and welcome the operational support and help that our experts can provide. But when our experts are talking to them, it is very important to make sure that they're not blaming the companies for their deficiencies. They are saying, okay, let us help you. Let's work together to make you stronger. We want to empower our companies, not challenge them, uh, not uh, you know, identify their weaknesses and, and, and say, do something about it. We are going to help them cover all of their deficiencies. So this collaborative partnership attitude is something that we all have to carry. Every member of WAVE Every member of WAVE is a face of the firm and they interact with the portfolio companies and we have to make sure that at every step, every interaction, they provide support and collaboration rather than criticism um, or uh, anything that weakens or, uh, or, or, or shows them down. Uh, yeah, and that's avoiding conflict and, and yes, misunderstanding. And I'm sure, again, in your time acting as peacekeeper and, and overseeing those national elections, that, that diplomacy, that you've got to be diplomatic in how you not only manage and interact with your own team, but, but equally how you also interact with management teams externally. And there's, there's, it's a fine dance. That's right. And then the third aspect is, you know, as you start to execute with the firms, um, you also bring in, you, you broaden your ecosystem. You're bringing in other co-investors. You're bringing in mm. distributors and partners and strategic investors into the companies. So how do you identify 
the right people who will share this growth mindset of your portfolio companies and really help them in every possible way. Uh, there again, a lot of that collaborative partnership and as you call it, diplomacy comes into force. Um, the strategic partners often would want to subsume the activities of the portfolio companies to their own strategic goals. So if you have, for example, a company in carbon nanotubes and they have partnerships in the concrete industry and in the water industry and in the uh, you know, battery industry, each strategic partner would want chasm, um, you know, the portfolio company to serve its purpose rather than, you know, serve the other markets that they're, you know, that they're also addressing. And how do we make sure that there is a balance between the goals of our portfolio companies and the goal of the strategics so that to minimize conflict and maximize collaboration and movement? It's just got a, a, a last thought from you, um, uh, just in terms of the investment landscape uh, within clean tech, Praveen. It's, it, it is a, a real hotbed of, of innovation right now. Uh, there's a lot of focus, a lot of investors are, are very, very committed to impact investing and private markets, frankly, are... are a key wheel in the in the in the machine in terms of funding this transition to clean tech to energy clean energy to food tech. Uh, so what, I wonder what what excites you most about this particular part of the market that you're operating in, and and how you see that going forward. There are two ways to make investments. Um, one is you have a thesis of what you're looking for um, in terms of investment ideas or sectors or even solutions. So, for example, um, you know, policymakers and the United Nations and the World Economic Forum, they're all uh, industry experts. They're, they have all come to a view that hydrogen economy is the future. Now, nobody said this five years ago. It is something... Mm -hmm new and current. And so if you ask most investors, they will say, oh, hydrogen economy is a key area of focus for us. We don't say that. Um, and, and the reason for that is we really, really want to believe that if you're going after true innovation, then the solution should be affordable today. They should be scalable today. Uh, we don't want to invest in things um, that potentially can become economical in 10 years. Ambient air carbon capture, or direct air capture is another such example uh, because the US government and even UK and European governments are talking about and providing a lot of support for direct air capture. Now, why are they providing capital support? Because those technologies don't make money today. The direct air capture costs five to 10 times more than industrial carbon capture. But policymakers came up with this notion. In order to really attain our goals, the last mile solution will have to involve removing carbon from the atmosphere. So let's go after it today. We are at zero mile. We are not at last mile today. We are at zero mile. After 10, 20 years of investments and you know, people talk about trillions of dollars that have been invested in the greening of the planet, have we reduced our you know, carbon, uh, the, the carbon dioxide emissions or greenhouse gas emissions? No, mm. we are still at zero mile. And we are talking about providing subsidies of hundreds of millions or, and billions, tens of billions of dollars for solutions that we're going to need when we are at the last mile. I mean, talk about it, you know, look, the, the policymakers love to talk, paint this seductive vision of a green utopia. Mm. And the notion of affordability, of affordability is almost seen as an impediment to change. Whereas it should be the primary vehicle of change. Go for innovations which are going to reduce the cost today. You should not need spreadsheets to verify if 
my products are actually reducing greenhouse gas emissions. The story should be clear from the get-go. IntelliHot reduces 50% energy usage for water heating. Factorial solid-state battery improves your driving range by 40% without increasing any cost. Gradient recycle the dirtiest industrial wastewater that were impossible to treat before. And that's why they have grown to a $200 million revenue this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm talking about Fund One companies. Uh, AeroSafe Global, it reduces landfills by more than 90% and reduces cost and eliminates you know, wastage of medicine and vaccines when they are being shipped around from source to destination. Very obvious environmental impact. And there are so many of these these extremely clever inventions which are already in market, but they're getting ignored because the investors want to rush after ideas which are painted by the policymakers as the, as the direction for the future that we want to be you know, in 20 or 30 or 40 years. But we have so many solutions here to, available to us today. That's interesting. That's interesting that they're almost looking so far ahead and having that, that, that utopian view of look, look what could be achieved by investing here right now, as opposed to, and, and as you say, that's probably outlandish. It's expensive. It's, 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 uh, it's not scalable. Whereas all of the exciting, innovative, real demonstrable changes are, you've got to look at the the other end of the spectrum and that that's where it's going to make a difference it's a journey but it sounds like they're already trying to be at the destination absolutely you know a few good things come out of you know all of these policies but there is so much more um that is uh potentially destructive um and you know when um, the clean tech collapsed after 2010 um because you know we had companies like you know on the front newspaper of the US, um, people talked about companies uh, like Solyndra that had received hundreds of millions of dollars uh, from the federal programs, and it really created a sentiment that nobody can make money in clean tech, clean tech investing, and it caused a massive exodus of all of the private capital from clean tech investing. And virtually set the industry behind by 10 years. Um, I'm very afraid that we will see a repeat of that again. Just to finish, uh, Praveen, because again, this is going back to, you know, the policymakers, the the legislators. And uh, is that, are you, are you, are you doing anything to educate and, and influence how, Policymakers are, are, are thinking about this clean tech industry, this revolution, and, and what, where they should really be thinking. What where the opportunities are? I mean, is that uh, something that you think you have a responsibility to to help? You can only demonstrate by doing. If you believe that there is a you know a right path, then execute on the right path and show us the results. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and so. Um, it is um, not telling, it is more of doing. Um, we have also, we are also a very small firm that was for the first, you know, uh, several years, um, five, six years, we were completely penurious. It was very difficult for us to raise money. Our companies didn't have any money. There was a complete absence of co-investors. So our portfolio companies you know, struggled to raise money. And a lot of that has not, not been solved. We are still not a cap, you know, a firm. Um, that can afford, for example, a robust marketing program to talk about what we are doing. So thank you, you know, for giving us your attention. Uh, but uh, now that the full circle is coming together and the earlier investments that we made are now exiting and, you know, creating very strong profits to the investors, now the story is becoming complete. Now we can talk about case studies and say, okay, the approach that we have been talking about Look, it makes sense because we, you know, look at these companies that have grown from a million in revenue at the time of initial investment to 50, 100 mm. or 200 million dollars in revenue. Their valuations have grown from 20 million dollars initially to a billion plus in many instances. 
So the story makes sense. The approach makes sense. Let us allow to do more of what we have done successfully. Give us more capital, let, you know, or invest more firms like us um, so that there is more capital available to go after really pragmatic ideas that work today, are scalable today. Um, but um, y- you can't just go out and, you know, with a microphone saying that, oh, there is a better way mm-hmm. to do it. you got to demonstrate it. Yeah, no, completely, completely right. It's uh, actions definitely speak louder th- than words, and uh, it's bit, it's a fascinating journey that you've been on, Praveen. And uh, it's been a real pleasure having you as a guest today. And wish you all the very best with uh, Fund Three. I, I'm sure you're uh, keeping your eyes on some some very interesting innovations still at the moment. Uh, how is it going with the? Uh, are you are you fully invested yet, or? How is the how is the pipeline? We launched uh, this year. Uh, we have done a small close. We have made three investments. Very very interesting companies, uh, unique in their own right, uh, but already growing uh, fairly rapidly in the marketplace. Um, and a lot of their momentum and our momentum is actually coming from Europe. So um, there is a special sense of gratitude that I feel towards the Europeans who are really putting their money where their mouth is. Um, And uh, their dedication, uh, their sincerity towards a green transformation is not superficial. It is really uh, deeply felt and they're acting on it. Um, The investment we made this year, for example, or even the previous investments, most of their market momentum is coming from strategic investors that are based in Europe, uh, which is very encouraging uh, for us. Uh, And a lot of capital that we are seeing uh, is, uh, I was in Europe, you know, for two weeks, about three weeks ago, uh, and the love and the embrace uh, and the um, support that you saw among the European LPs was very heartwarming. So, so yes, uh, it is all moving in the right direction. And now that we are, completing the story from investing to exit. Several exits, you know, are already taking place now. So uh, that has brought us a full circle and Fund 3 looks like is going to be well positioned. Excellent. Well, that's great news. That's great, great to hear. And um, again, thanks a lot for being my guest today, Praveen. And uh, it's been a great pleasure. Really fascinating journey. And uh, I wish you all the best. Thank you. Thank you for your time.